I've been doing a somewhat of a series. A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, you are his masterpiece. Out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he created so you can walk in them. He, he designed good works for us to walk in. We talked about how valuable you are to him. And then last week, we talked about finding your Jerusalem. As we realize how powerful God wants to be in us and through us, he didn't just come to dwell within us just so we can say, oh, isn't that cool that God dwells within me? Although that is cool that God dwells within me, right? But he came to dwell within us for a purpose. And so that's that, so we can grow up into Christ, so that we can grow up into him, become more like him and do the things that he did and the things that he still wants to do in and through us. You know, when Jesus did all those cool things that we see in the New Testament, when he did those things, he didn't do those for three and a half years and then check out and go to heaven and quit doing those things. He set everything up so that he can do those things on a greater scale, greater magnitude, greater capacity, and that's through you and me. Do you realize that? Because he said, Father, those that believe in me, he didn't say Father, he's talking to the disciples actually. He said, anyone who believes in me, John 14, 12, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do. Greater works. So Jesus still desires to do those amazing things, but he's choosing to do them through you. Will you let him? Will you let him? Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus is talking to his disciples. You shall receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we talked about how he was talking specific, he was talking geographical locations when he said, you're going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to all the world. And we realized that for us to follow that, that same pattern, we cannot follow it specifically. We're not all to get born again and then move to Jerusalem and start in Jerusalem and then Judea. But where we are here in our location in Oklahoma, we are to start where we are in Stillwater, then move to Oklahoma, and then the United States, and all over the world, we're to be his disciples. And he empowered us through his spirit to be his disciples, to be his witnesses. Are you with me so far? And then what I was saying is that we all recognize, and we probably even do it without even realizing it, that we can't follow that scripture specifically, because that would mean moving to Jerusalem, but we follow it in principle. We still obey, but we start where we are, right? So a lot of biblical application is through principle, but it's still biblical application. And what I feel like the Holy Spirit impressed upon me is not only can we apply that scripture in principle geographically, but also when it comes to our relationships, personal relationships, where you start with, your, you start with the first relationship and you move out. You start with Jerusalem, then, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to all over the world. And so in Ephesians, starting with chapter 4, I believe, the Bible starts dealing with relationships that are all important to all of us. And what, I'm, what I mean by the title, we need to find your, uh, find your Jerusalem, is where is it that you need to start right now? Where is God wanting you to specifically start as far as your witness and your growth process and then move out from? And so we're talking in the context of personal relationships. And when I first started looking at this, I thought the first relationship would be marriage. How many of you thought the first relationship is marriage? Just me and Heather? We're the only ones? <laughs> Thanks for being willing to stand with me, Heather. Appreciate that. But I realized that the first relationship that the Bible addresses, and I believe this is the Jerusalem where we start, are church family relationships. Because that's where the Bible starts. In verse chapter, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, the prison of the Lord, I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So right there, the challenge. And when it says, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Paul says that after he told us how powerful we are in Christ. He told us about how we're born again and God transferred us from darkness and and caused us to come into his kingdom and how the Holy Spirit is within us and we're his workmanship, we're his masterpiece. He says, okay, now that you know all this and how much God loves you, now here's what I want you to do with it. Walk worthy of the calling. And here's how. Because see, we can talk about it all day, but what do we do with it? He says, okay, here's what we do with it. Starting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So he starts there. I'm not going to repeat that. I talked about that last week or sometime, either last week or the week before, whenever I talked about it. So you can listen to that, that podcast because I want to get on to some other things. So he does start with church relationships. And some of us have relationships or things we need to deal with. We need to get things right. Amen? And again, I talked about that last week. And then the next relationship he moves into is marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he starts with, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. Now, one thing that, backing up to uh, chapter 4, verse 17, one thing that we have to understand, when we look at the relationships, we look at husband-wife relationship, we look at body relationship with one another, we look at children-to-parents relationship, parents-to-children, then it moves into employers-employees. When we look at those relationships, there's one thing that we have to understand and grasp in order for us to be able to walk successfully and in a godly way in those relationships. In it's chapter 4, starting with verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, making their, having their understanding, dark, understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, that's a mouthful. But here's the point. In order for me to be able to walk in my marriage in a way that honors God, and that pleases him, is I have to understand this part first. I have to put off the old man and put on the new man. I can't walk in the old way of thinking. I can't walk in the futility of my mind. And here's what I believe happens. When we look at verse 22, and we say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And all us men say, Amen, preach it, brother. And when we interpret those scriptures in the way I believe they've been interpreted over the years for, for, for a long time or whatever, and the way it's played out in the church, is I believe it's been translated through the futility of our thinking. In other words, the way this has been presented and everything from us men, it's like, this is going to be good for me. Wife, Submit. And the reason why I've been thinking about this is because if, if I'm thinking about Jesus and how he treated people, how he treated women, and then I match that with how we've interpreted this scripture, basically making our wives servant, servants to us, there's a big disconnect there between the way Jesus valued women and taught us to value women and the way we as the church value or devalue women. Are you hearing me? Now, I'm not asking if you agree. Because you might not. But this is why we have such a problem. We look at these verses and say, wives, submit. Yeah, woman, you're supposed to submit because the word says it right there. Submit to me. You know, last week I shared how when I was young married, I'm still young married, but way back then I was really young married. And how I was treating my wife and I had my thoughts of basically she's to serve me. And do what I want her to do. Right? Don't answer that. I mean, for the most part, that's kind of how I, I walked that out. But then the Lord got a hold of me 
and begin to explain something to me like only he can. And he said, son, that's not how it's happening. Now, he didn't say it in that language, okay? I just kind of ad-libbed that. But he said, that's not how this is going to happen. And he began to show me that my responsibility was to love her, to love her. And I want to say something here to clarify. God's motive for me loving my wife is not so that she will submit to me. I'm going to say that again. God's motive for me loving her is not so she will submit to me. I'm thinking, okay, if I love this woman, she'll submit to me. Now, maybe that was my motive. Maybe that's what I was thinking. i got to figure out some way to get this girl to, to cooperate. So I'll just love on her a little bit, encourage her, motivate her a little bit. And it seemed to work quite a bit. But I realized God's motive wasn't me, for me to do what I'm doing so she will do what she's supposed to do. God says, son, love her, Period. Love her just like Christ loves the church. And you realize Christ doesn't love us to motivate us, to, to manipulate us, to do stuff. Do you realize that? If I love my church good enough, then maybe they will. He loves us. Think about how he loves you. Think about on your worst day, your bad hair day, your bad attitude, bad, all that stuff, how he still loves you. And he doesn't love you to try to get you to change that bad attitude. Now, typically when we, we see his love, we experience his love, it does motivate us. Like, man, why would I want to stay in this condition when he's wanting to call me into a greater experience? But the point I'm trying to make is because sometimes we can interpret, if I just love my wife good enough, or I, I do this for my children or whatever, then they're gonna, I'm going to get what I want. Because see, some of you say, well, I tried to love my wife, and it didn't work. And see, the emphasis on there is tried. Jesus didn't say, husbands, try to love your wives. That's not even in there. He says, husbands, love. Now, there is also the emphasis on, there is that verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands. But you know what? It is not my job to figure that out. It is not my job to figure out what it looks like or why is what you need to do to submit to your husband. You know whose job I believe it is? I believe in a marriage, husbands and wives, you come together and figure out what it's supposed to look like in your marriage, these verses right here. With the help of the Holy Spirit, not walking in the futility of your old thinking. See, because if you do that, then we know what it's going to look like. It's going to look like, wife, give me some supper. Wife, get me some drink. Wife, whatever. And it's interesting because when I look at Jesus again, I don't see anything close to that. Nothing close to that. I feel like the Lord told me that my job, I've got plenty of jobs actually, one of my jobs is to help her be successful. To help my wife succeed in what God's called her to do. And do you realize, now I'm going to say something, whether you agree or not, too bad, I don't care. Her calling, her number one call, well, I don't know if it's number one call, but here's what I believe. I don't believe her whole calling is about me. See, because I believe some of our interpretation is that wives, your calling is to take care of your husband. And it becomes so eager, or I don't know the word to say, centered around man. What was the word? Yeah, that. God has called my wife to do some amazing things. Now, I happen to be one of her priorities, and she treats me that way. But my priority is not to get her to make me a priority. My priority is to serve her, help her to be successful. Okay, if I'm called to be the stronger one out of the two, then I'm going to use my strength to move things out of the way so that she can come along and be successful. That's what he's called me to do. And I'm secure enough to help her be successful. Even if that looks like she's more powerful than I am. If that's the case, so be it. 
Now, sometimes in my soul, I'm like, God, what about me? That's not fair. I remember that. In the years past, we would do things, men would do things, they would do things, she would lead, and women would do things, and it seems like you kind of weigh it. It's like, dude, that is a whole lot more powerful than what I just did. That's not fair. God, that's not fair. But then he encouraged me, and I, I, what I feel like he encouraged me with is sometimes, maybe, and this is just my interpretation, maybe he has us men do things to bring breakthrough so that the women can come behind and experience more freedom. And then we all benefit from that. When my wife walks in freedom, guess who benefits from that? Me. Her family. Because even though it's not a scripture in the Bible, it is still true. When mama's happy, So here's what I challenge you couples, you married couples. Together in the Lord, you guys decide, Lord, what does this look like in our family? What does it look like for the wife to submit to the husband and the husband to love the wife? And I believe together the Holy Spirit will show you what it's going to look like in your context. Because it's going to be different in different contexts. There are some cultural differences that if I try to preach into the American culture, it's going to tear things apart. But when we do that, don't we? We take our religious mindsets and we try to interject it into situations that we have no right interjecting them into. We need to preach the word, but we need to trust the Holy Spirit in people, in his believers, that he's going to help them understand and interpret the word the way they're supposed to in their situation. So, brothers, I am challenging you. Our job is not to make our wives submit. Our job is to love them. Amen? Do you realize that, that Christianity is not about our happiness? Do you realize that? See, in America, we get things so mixed up because, see, that is our common core value, happiness. And so we want to interpret everything. We want to interpret God's kingdom. We want to interpret God's dealings with us through that core value of happiness, Does this make me happy? Yes, then I will do it. Does it make me happy? No, then it must not be God's will for me. (laughs) Loving my wife, does that make me happy? Not mostly. So therefore, I should only do it sometimes when I'm happy, right? When I'm in a good mood, right? See, I tried it and it didn't work. I got to remove the word try and forget about happiness being a core value and just honor and love and obey him, period. See, our Christianity here in America is all messed up because we have, we're so blessed, we're so wonderful here in America, and I'm not putting that down. I live here, I'm American, and I love my country, and I appreciate the sacrifice that has been paid and that is still being paid for me to enjoy the freedom that I have. I do not take it lightly, but what can happen is what we experience here in America, all this affluence and this comfort and this wonderful air conditioning that I'm enjoying right now. And we get that, the American thing, mixed into Christianity. And we try to make the Bible conform to our American stuff. And we worship comfort here in America. We worship comfort. Comfort is one of our core values. And if the Word of God tells me to do something outside of that comfort, then it must not be God's will. Some of us won't even think about leaving this country to go on a mission trip because we're wondering how comfortable it's going to be. Is the AC work over there? Is the bathroom situation going to be taken care of for me over there? This is kind of a side note, but this is something I realize. I believe the number one concern of Americans, especially this, when we go on mission trips, our number one concern is the bathroom situation. Now, if you think about that, and those of you who've been on mission trips, if you think about that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm speaking truth right now. Because when we get over there, that's the number one thing that causes discomfort. And for many of us, it can be a deal breaker. Instead of being willing, God, I trust your grace to help me through this situation, instead of leaning on his grace and 
and, and grabbing a hold of his grace to do what he's called me to do, I measure it, my obedience or not, based on the comfort level that I think I might experience. Again, going back to happiness. Am I going to be happy when I go there? As long as there's a good bathroom, I will be. That was a side thing. Okay, moving to chapter 6. Because I really want to get into this, and I don't know if I'm going to stay here the rest of the time or not. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, children. Raise your hand if you're children. Oh, I guess that's all of us. Never mind. <laughs> children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and you live long on the earth. Verses 1 through 3. How many of you guys, you young people who are still in the home, still in the home, I think we're all in the home, right? Still under your parents' jurisdiction. How many of you have heard Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, preach from your parents? Woohoo! yeah. You guys seem so excited about it. It's like, oh, Dad, I bet you're about to quote Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3, right. Yeah, because I didn't take the trash out again. Yeah. <laughs> but here again is a command, children, obey your parents and Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Then he gives the promise. In my question, I asked the Lord the other day, I've read this verse, I've quoted this verse, I've heard this verse a whole bunch. And I never even asked him this question until the other day. And I was amazed at how fast he answered me. Lord, why in the world? You know what's interesting? It's the first commandment with a promise. Okay, we're about to have youth group right now, okay? So those of you who are under 18, still living at home, or even if you're 18 and you're still living at home, you're still under your parents' jurisdiction. As long as they're paying the bills, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we're having youth group right now because the youth pastors are out of town, so don't tell them that I'm taking over right now. But I want to talk to you young people, because this is a very powerful, very potent, and very life-filled passage right here. I ask the Lord, Lord, why the promise? Why the promise? It is the first command with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Why is that? And here's what I believe he spoke and showed me. You ready? Ready for it? Because there are certain now, check this out. When your children, parents, when your children are two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, when they're that, that very formative age, it's not hard for you to get them to obey you, right? Am I right? I'm not, I'm not talking about your strong-willed ones. Okay, we're going to put them aside for right now. Because <laughs> I got one of them. Hallelujah, he's a grown, awesome man of God. But anyway, we're not... Aside from the strong-willed ones, those that, that terrorize you every day, the rest of your kids, for the most part, up to, you know, eight, nine, it's, you know, honor and obey your parents, it's not that big a deal. Who do I really believe he's speaking to right here? When the child becomes, moves into that stage where they begin to experience that independent stuff going on inside of them. You know, we call it puberty. I don't know what they call it in other countries, but then we call it Never mind. We call it puberty. And there's, there comes a point in your life when everything inside of you, your parents say A, and everything inside of you wants to say B. And you think you're right. I mean, you're willing to die for it because you're about to be killed. <laughs> because all the stuff, you know, the changes, the, the hormones, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Those of you who don't just wait, you'll see. But when these changes are going on inside of you, which is normal, which is part of God's design for you to grow up and become independent, because we don't want you staying at our house all the time forever, right? So you're supposed to go through that. But the problem is, is when you're starting to go through those changes, you can get confused a little bit and think that you know it all. Now, I know I'm being silly, but I, I remember when I was that age, I used to think I knew stuff and my parents became dumb. They didn't know a thing. You know, it's interesting because my younger children believed that I was Superman and Mr. Genius. And my teenagers thought I was an idiot. And now my adult sons have moved back into the genius stage. 
Because <laughs> they're calling me all the time, asking for wisdom and advice, and it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But I remember, too, when I went to that stage where my parents were idiots. They didn't know nothing. And see, here's the problem. You think you're right. Your parents don't know anything. So they say A, and immediately you want to say B. And the Lord put this promise here is because he said, okay, sons and daughters, I know how you feel. I know everything inside of you says this is not right. They don't know. This is not right. They don't understand. But I'm going to need you to trust me. I'm going to need, and this is the Lord speaking to you, I'm going to need you to trust me during these years. Trust that I can use imperfect vessels. Trust that I can use your parents who you see their flaws every single day because you live with them. You see their flaws, their mistakes, their hypocrisy, all the stuff. And so that to you validates and gives you excuse as to why you should not have to obey or listen to them because they don't know any better. The Lord is saying, I'm challenging you and asking you to trust me and honor and obey them anyway. Someday you will understand, right now you don't. And he even throws this little thing in, well, big thing. He says, that it may go well with you and you live long on the earth. You know, there was this man named Jesus. Anybody ever heard of him? Luke chapter 2, verse 51, 52 says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Now, the story is when Jesus, when his parents, they left Jerusalem or wherever they were, They left, and Jesus stayed behind, and he was hanging out with the religious leaders and learning and all that kind of stuff. Then they realized Jesus was gone and all that kind of stuff. Then they come back and find him. They're like, son, why have you done this to us, blah, blah, blah. And it says Jesus went with them. Now, he was a young man. He was a teenager or preteen or whatever. And it says he went with them and was obedient to them. Now, let me ask you this question. Imagine you're God, and your parents aren't. You're perfect. They ain't. And you're obedient to them? You're submitting to them? You're honoring them? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? See, Jesus wouldn't expect us to do something unless he gave us the example first. And then not only does he give us the example, but he gives us the ability by his spirit within us to do the same thing he did. And as a result of him being obedient and and honoring them, it says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Are you hearing me, youth group? So what is God wanting to provide? It says, honor your parents, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you when you live long on the earth. First of all, living long on the earth, which indicates that you can live a short time on the earth, which means that there's an opportunity for you to be taken out before your time. Otherwise, why would that, that promise even need to matter, right? It'd be pointless. You may live long on the earth. How many times do we know or how many tragic stories that we hear of people dying in their teenage years. Crazy, weird stuff. For example, the story of a, of a young lady, a teenager, her dad said she could not go out to this party or whatever it was with her friends. So she went to her bedroom, wait till her father fell asleep. Then she leaves the room, you know, goes out the window, goes to the party and everything. And on either the way there or the way back, car accident, she dies. You may live long on the earth. Imagine if she would have obeyed her dad. At least she would have lived longer than that. A friend of mine that I grew up in high school, junior high and high school with, his mom told us this story. That when she was a young lady, she used to go visit a relative. I can't remember if it was a grandmother or whoever. She'd go, she looked forward to visiting a relative, relative who lived a ways away, and she would take the train to go visit this relative. So she was looking forward to, she had permission to go and visit this relative on the weekend. So she's so excited. Then all of a sudden, the day of, when she's supposed to be able to go, her mom changed her mind. Said, you can't go. Why can't I, go? Why can't I not go? Her mom didn't give her a valid reason. She said, you cannot go. Really, the mom did not know why. All of a sudden, she just knew, you ain't going. And the girl copped an attitude, threw a fit, well, however she did it. She was not happy. Now, she didn't sneak out or anything. Stayed home, upset, mad. Later, they find out that that train that she would have been on had an accident. People died. See, sometimes 
us parents have no clue as to why you should or should not do something, but we just have this knower inside that says, no. Why can't I go? I don't know. You just not. Why can't I do that? I don't know. You said I could. You said that if I did this and this and this, then I can go. I know I said that. I'm sorry. Change my mind. Explain to me why you changed your mind. Give me three logical explanations <laughs> as to why. And you see what I'm getting at? We want to argue. And so we're waiting for our parents to, the parents to give you a reason so you can tear it to shreds. And see, the reason why I'm saying this, see, I've never been a teenager, but I've heard stories like this. God is saying, will you trust me? Will you have faith in me? And again, remember our foolish thinking. Remember the old man. Jesus says, before, before we get into the, the, the relational thing, in chapter 4, verse 17, it says that we have to put off the old and put on the new. It's the same thing as being a, a teenager. We have to put off the old way of thinking, the futility of our thinking, the darkness, the, the, the mind and the life that is separated from God. And we have to put on Christ. Only when we do that, then can we walk in a way to honor our parents that's going to honor him. And everything not be an argument. Everything not be a fight. And see, when he says to honor and obey, first to obey means do what they said, and to honor means to do it with the right attitude. Because see, I can obey, but not be honoring. I can be taking the trash out, but cussing up a storm on the inside. I mean, not that any of, anybody here would ever do that. But why is this so important? God wants to provide you with things. He says that it will go well with you. Well to me means favor. God wants to bless you with favor. I mean, the kind of favor that's crazy that people don't understand why you're such a young man or woman that seems wise beyond your years. And the things that come out of your mouth just blow me away. And the, the creativity and, and just the godliness and the character. It's like, what the heck happened to these teenagers? And they're seeing Christ in you. See, because in this world, teenager is a bad word. See, when I served as a youth pastor for 12 and a half years, I used to take offense at the attitudes that I, that I felt towards teenagers. Because teenagers had a bad rap. It's like people, adults who are afraid of teenagers because when they saw teenagers, they, they assumed rebellion. Oh, teenager, you must be rebellious because you're a teenager. And unfortunately, that has been the case in a lot of situations. Teenagers are rebellious because teenagers get into that stage. They don't have the mind of Christ because they're not born again. And then what do they do? They reject the very ones who can help them the most, the ones who are probably in their corners the most. They reject them and go hang out with their all-wise and all-knowing friends, where they get all their wisdom from. And it's crazy. He wants to provide favor. He wants to protect you from making choices that have years and years and years and years of consequence. Are you hearing me? Years and years and years of consequence. That doesn't mean he won't forgive you. But if you make certain choices... There's going to be some consequences that come with that that you may have to deal with the rest of your life on, on earth and be forgiven. But see, God, knowing that, says, I don't even want you to have to deal with all that stuff. I want to have you avoid all this mess, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me. And that means honoring and obeying your parents. Honoring, obeying your parents. I want to share a story. Some of you may or may not have heard this. Uh, many of you have heard this in the, in the church because I've shared this many times because it meant such a, a lot to me. But an example of a young man in our church who, who's now a man who um, wanted to go on a mission trip with us. One of our Mexico mission trips. He was in our youth group. And he prayed and he felt like God wanted him to go. I'm going to Mexico. God wants me to go to Mexico. Well, his parents were not believers. So he went home and talked to mom. Hey, mom, we're about the youth group's about to go on a mission trip, blah, blah, blah. We're going to raise this money, da, 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 da. She, you know, he explained all that. And, she, and he said, can I go? And she said, over my dead body. I think that means no. 
right? So she was adamant, no, you're not going, because she was afraid of, listen, she was afraid of the dangers that her son might experience. Afraid, danger, Mexico, dangerous. But he's a Christian, and he felt like God said yes, and his mom says no. So he copped an attitude, because his mom didn't know nothing, because she wasn't a Christian. He was a spirit-filled Christian, spoke in tongues. And God spoke to him. So his mom didn't know nothing. And so Lisa and I discerned, and we could tell, because this man, he was, an, he was a great young man, but he had some attitudes towards his parents. He was a teenager, right in there, the, the normal stuff or the, the common, I'm not going to say normal, I'm going to say common stuff that he was going through, attitude towards parents. This gave him an excuse to have an attitude. You know that self-righteous, I'm right, they're wrong? See, he had proof that he was right and they were wrong because God wanted him to go on a godly adventure. His mom said no because she was afraid. How can her being afraid be right? So we encouraged him. We knew that God was dealing with his attitudes and everything. And see, the other thing that God wants to provide and, and work in you is he's wanting to build Christ's character in all of us. He doesn't want you to wait until you're an adult for you to allow him to do that. As early as possible, the younger you start, the better off you're going to be. The more powerful, quicker you're going to be in Christ. So anyway, what I encouraged him with, I said, why don't you just go ahead, even though she says no, go ahead and do the fundraisers with us. Do all the activities we're doing to raise money. If you don't get to go, then the money can go towards another person to help them. If you get to go, then you have the money in your account that you can go with us. He thought that was a good idea. As we, and this was, a, this was several months period of time that this elapsed. So as we're working and doing stuff together, doing life together, being his youth pastors, all that kind of stuff, his attitude starts to change towards his parents. That self-righteous, haughty attitude began to come down over time. And then I, I tell him, keep praying, keep praying. We're praying. He asks his mom, hey, mom, you think I can go to Mexico? No. At least it wasn't over her dead body. There was an improvement. She's moving in the right direction. So we kept praying, kept praying, kept moving, kept doing stuff. And then later on, he asked her again, hey, mom, do you think I can go to Mexico? Maybe. Kept doing stuff, kept doing stuff, kept doing stuff. She finally said yes. He didn't badger her. He didn't manipulate. He didn't beat. He didn't do all this stuff. He just honored God, allowed God to work in him, and allowed God to turn her heart if he saw fit. The Bible says the heart of the king is in God's hand. He can turn it. So you have to understand that God is bigger than your parents. No man on this planet can keep you from doing God's will, can keep God's destiny from you. Only you can. So it's like, well, if no, because my mom said I can't do this, and so she's trying to block God's will from my life. She's not bigger than God. And here's the interesting thing about the young man, that it may go well with you and you live long on the earth. His mom said yes. He was doing all he could to raise the money for the trip. And I remember we were getting real close. It was like a week or so before the trip. He was $100 short of having his money. And I remember a man in the church came up to me, and said, hey, CJ, you guys are going on a trip and everything? I said, yeah, sure am. And he said, well, the Lord put, a, uh, put on my heart to give you $100 uh, for one of the youth. I said, really? He said, yes, I'd like you to give this to, to go towards so-and-so's account. And it was the young man who was short $100. He, nobody knew that except, you know, except us. So God miraculously provided for this young man. And here's the cool thing. You know how the children of Israel, when they went out of Egypt, when, when finally... Pharaoh let them go. Remember that? Finally, get out of here. Get out of my sight. And it says that the children of Israel went out with all that loot. They went out with all the pants, whatever the stuff they went out, all the loot, the goods. Well, this young man, when he went on our trip, his mom sent with him a duffel bag about this big, full of snacks. It was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah, I got these some. And see, that young man learned a very, very, very valuable lesson. Number one, that God was bigger than mom. Even when mom threw the over my dead body 
phrase out there. He saw that God is bigger than her and that God intended for and wanted him to go on the trip all along. But see, what God was more concerned about than he was the trip was the character developed in the young person so that when he went on the trip, he or she would be ready to minister effectively because they allowed God to deal with that attitude inside of them. Does that make sense? And see, it's that way with all of us, whether we're husband, wife, son, daughter, God is concerned about dealing with and transforming us into the image of Christ. So we want to move into our calling. God has a purpose for me. God has a calling on my life. Yes, that's true. But God wants you to, he wants his character to be developed in you so that when you get to the place of your calling, you have the character to be able to walk effectively in that calling. Because he wants us to be effective ministers of the gospel. He wants us to have a message when we are placed in front of people who need a message. And not talking about just words. I'm talking about people who, just like I appreciate Leanne being, willing, being transparent and vulnerable and sharing what she shared. Do you guys realize how dangerous that was? But why was she so eager to share that message? Because she's thinking, there may be other brothers and sisters that are struggling with shame because I was. See, there are people out there that need the message that you're allowing God to develop in you. But if you try to skip his process, teenagers with you, it's your, par- your parents are your number one. They should be your number one godly influence. If they're, not Christ- if they're not saved, God still wants to use them. He still will use them. But that is your major molding, shaping time. And if you will cooperate with him through that process... It'll be amazing, the godly character that'll be developed in you at an early age. And see, God is wanting us to be effective ministers of the gospel, not people who know and can quote scripture. Because what if I meet a man out in society who's struggling with his relationship with his wife? And I'm struggling with my relationship with my wife because I'm not submitted to his word that tells me to love my wife. What kind of message am I going to have for that man? I can quote scripture at him. That's not going to do him any good. You know when Jesus, when the Bible says that Jesus, he preached with authority? Remember that? And he said, it says, not like the scribes? What was that about? Because when Jesus preached something, he had the lifestyle to back it up. When the scribes were saying stuff, they didn't have any lifestyle with it. They were just quoting words. Many Christians can quote the right stuff, but they don't have the lifestyle to back it up. So it comes across as hollow and empty. You know, when I see a man, when I hear about a man or see a man that can preach really good, it's like, man, that dude can preach. I really personally could care less how good he preaches until I see how he treats his wife. If I see a man that can preach, because see, there's gifts. The gifts of God are without repentance. There can people, have, people can be powerfully gifted. It's like, dang, God put a lot of gifts in that person. And just, they can just blow it up. But the character is lacking because they haven't allowed that. Or maybe they're just young in Christ. There hasn't been time for that character to develop yet. Or maybe they're just not allowing the character to be developed. But you don't necessarily have to have the character to have the gifts. You don't have to have any character to have the gifts. Are you hearing me? Look at the Corinthian church. They had all kinds of power, gifts going on, and they were very immature. And so when a man can preach very well... What I want to say is, how does he treat his wife? Because to me, that shows character. And then if I see the countenance of his wife is very bright, especially towards, because you know, you can watch a couple and you can see, at least I can, you can kind of see what's going on between a husband and wife. Because typically when a husband and wife honor and love each other, there's just a countenance. It's not that they're trying to do this, but there's just a countenance of hers towards him that's bright. And there's a tenderness from him towards her. 
They may not even notice it. When I see that, I'm all ears. Sir, I want to hear what you have to say. I open my heart for you to influence me and impact me because I believe you have the character of God growing in you because I see that you're allowing it to spill over into your wife. Does that make sense? I'm becoming more and more passionate about his word, his kingdom, because I'm becoming more aware, again, that people are dying and people are without hope. You know, every time we treasure hunt, every single time, we come across people who are broken. We come across people who are just maybe down or just need to be encouraged. But then we come across someone who's broken. We met a man this last week. It was so cool because I was praying. My fear is, be transparent here, my fear is that we're going to go on a treasure hunt and it's not going to work. This is going to be the first time that it's not going to work, and it's like, oh, man, this didn't work. Got all these people let down. That has not happened yet. I've been on hundreds of treasure hunts, and it has not happened once. I don't, I don't know if maybe hundreds is an exaggeration. I don't know how many I've been on. Several. Let's say that. Let's say dozens. How's that? <laughs> we went this last week, and a team I was with, we, we hit this, we ended up in this location. And we saw this guy. One of our guys saw this like, that's him. He had all the clues. He was sitting, taking a break from his job, smoking a cigarette. One of our people had smoking. It's like, hey, he's got a cigarette. Get him. <laughs> if you really love Jesus, you'll get that cigarette out of your mouth right now. Just kidding. Didn't even say a word about the cigarette. That wasn't our concern. We approached this man and said, hey, we're on a treasure hunt. We believe you might be our treasure. Looks up, really? We explain to him, show him the clues. It is funny when people, anyway, show him the clues, and he's like, wow. This is a divine encounter between God. God set this up because he just wants to love on you. I was, so we love on this guy, pray for him and everything. We go and talk to who his boss inside, who was our treasure three weeks ago. And we felt like we we're supposed to go there again. And so he was really happy to see us. And we said, hey, what can we pray with you about? And basically he's like, pray for my coworker. He's really going through a rough time. That was the kid that we just encountered already. And then the next day I'm at work and I get an email. And I didn't recognize, I saw the name, didn't recognize it at first. And I was thought, you know, I get a lot of emails. But something caught my attention because it said, you came to my work last night. So I clicked on it. I don't know how this guy got my email address. I didn't give it to him. And it said something to the effect, you came to my work last night and prayed for me. He said, uh, Jesus and I are not on the best of terms. But after you prayed for me, I felt the closest I've ever felt to God. Thank you for coming by. Now, Now, all we were was a group of people. We had kids. We had adults. It is awesome. Just said, hey, Lord, we're available. I'm terrified. I'm scared spitless, but I'm willing to be used by you just to allow you to love people through me. And that's what happens. We get to love on people. And it is awesome. And here's what I get excited about. See, you have the goods inside of you but it's not going to do anybody any good if you don't get those goods outside of you. God's created you to be powerful, effective, and amazing. Now it's up to you to allow that stuff to come out. But we have to start at our Jerusalem. We can't skip to... Now we can go treasure hunting. I'm not saying you have to be perfect and your character has to be godly before you go treasure hunting. No. Let's go now. And in the process, we allow him to shape our character through our relationships. I'm learning to love my wife. I'm learning to, to um, I didn't even get to it in the scriptures, to nurture and train up my children in the, in the admission of, admonition of the Lord. Learning to do those things. As a teenager, I'm learning to honor and obey my parents. And in that process, as he's changing us, making us more like him, we're going to become more and more and more effective. 
And in the meantime, we're sharing a message to people who are lost, who are dying. No telling what that man's going through. When I laid hands on him, I felt some hopelessness. I felt some loneliness, which was one of the clues that one of our, our people had. How many people out there are lonely, hopeless, helpless, discouraged, dying, and you can come and impact them and change their destiny? Only because, not because you have some prophetic word or you lay hands on them and they get healed, but you love them in the name of Jesus. Amen? Okay, would you stand with me? I can see this town being turned upside down because you people decide to take the gospel seriously and begin to love on people outside these walls. I see us approaching people and them saying, you're the fourth Christian that's approached me this week and wanted to pray for me. Wow. And I bet you go to that one church, don't you? Yeah, the mother ones come to that church too. God's going to tear it up, tear this place up through you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you that you love us. And Lord, we submit to you. We say, have your way. We trust you. We choose to trust you, Lord. And we thank you that we can trust you, that we can lay all of our shame down. And we say, Lord, have your way in my life. I want to be like you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.